by, by helping the Ukrainians to win, by decisive action, by giving them what they need now. I believe that the Ukrainians can and will win. This is Conversations about Eastern Europe. Today I speak with Olina Dutko from Ukraine, who is currently living in Germany. We speak about a lot of the most important recent events. So I think this is really a conversation in which you get smarter about what is happening as a part of the war and what are the most important stories to follow. So get smarter and enjoy. Welcome to a conversation about Ukraine with Olena Dutko from Ukraine. Olena Dutko is working also in a Ukrainian political organization like Daria, whom I talked with earlier, and Jevenia, whom I also talked with earlier, thus. And I think this will be a very learningful experience because Olena knows a lot about Ukraine, about Ukraine's inspiration into the European democratic family and so on. And yeah, otherwise we're also going to talk about some of the actual, uh, how do you say it, like some of the recent news, some of the most recent development, very important storylines that Olena also knows a lot about. Uh, and yeah, I think that was it from me here in the beginning. Can you just uh, first talk a bit about yourself, Olena, your background, what you're doing now, how you ended up doing what you're doing now, and so on? Okay, so first of all, thanks a lot for welcoming me here. I mean, that's not a part of PR or any activity, but that's the way for me to speak up about my country and to speak up about something that hurts uh, because it is a pressing issue. And uh, being now and working in Europe, I see how people in Western Europe, they tend to forget that there is the war, full-scale war, um, in the middle of Europe and Russia committing genocide in the middle of Europe. So just a brief background about me. So I'm 24 years old. Uh, I have background in international law, particularly I have bachelor's in international law and master's in human rights advocacy. And um, I work currently, I live in Germany. I work here in the governmental institution. Also, it is illegal work to do. But uh, all my family and most of my friends are currently in Ukraine. And um, I was in Ukraine when the full-scale invasion started. So I was there like till the end of March. And uh, well, being in Germany doesn't mean that I care less because it's first of all our obligation as Ukrainians and commitment to make everything to win this war and make Russia withdraw troops from our territory. So I'm quite active in the political agenda. I, I, I have been active since I was a student and so I was volunteering a lot and I was doing a lot of civil activity and civil engagement. And now I keep up with the work, but also I do a lot of work in Germany to help Ukraine and to help us win this war faster. Yeah. And to me, it also seems pretty obvious that most Ukrainians right now is invested in one way or another in helping their country with 
regaining the right to all, all the territory it is entitled to under international law. And yeah, it's territory that is tried to be taken away from Ukraine without any good reasons whatsoever. So for me to also be able to talk with a Ukrainian like you, it's also uh, something that is very good for me and for the intentions of this conversation series and of the work that me and my producer are doing in general in order to help Ukraine. And I think we should just get right into it, Olena, and talk a bit about some of the recent events and some of the recent storylines. And then after that, we will go more into depth with your, with your work and to support Ukraine. But first, let's, um, let's dive into some of the more recently developed storylines that are very important for the development of the, of the war. And first of all, do you agree with me that right now there seems to be a lot of different storylines um, in which what is at stake is very important for the development of the war? And I know that it is always like that, but, but to me right now it just feels like there are so many different things going on where, uh, wherein the outcome is very important for Ukraine. So do you think that's a fair analysis of my part? Well, I think that politics and especially war, they are always very comprehensive and very multifaceted things. And they always combine a lot of elements and they all are inextricably connected. And that means that every situation depending on its development may influence the outcomes for centuries to come. So I would agree there that every particular victory, whether it is the victory at the battlefield or the diplomatic victory or the information warfare victory, they are essential and crucial for the whole picture and they are all connected and linked to each other. And I, of course, 100% agree with that, but it, it is nice to hear it from someone who, as a Ukrainian, experience this war in another way than, than the rest of us do. And I think the way that you're saying it also speaks volume to one of the points I have about being active, politically active as someone from the outside, which is that you need to, if you want to invest yourself wholeheartedly in the Ukrainian struggle as someone who is abroad, you need to be aware, aware of the fact that there is a lot of conceivable ways in which you can contribute to the Ukrainian cause. And that just goes to all levels, levels of what is determining the political discourse. And yeah, that, that is connected to what you said about wars being so comprehensive in a political thinking, at least. But, but now I think let's talk about some of the, the things that are very important right now, or, or at least are the things that are most up in the news coverage about the war. But let's start off with the Ukrainian offensive, because as we know, sometime in the middle of April, if I remember correctly, it 
started to become clear for a lot of uh, followers of the war experts and so on that Ukraine tended now to start an offensive to regain the territory that Russia won in Ukraine in the beginning of the war. And um, yeah, can you just um, tell me your perspective on the offensive? Like, why are we where we are now? And where should we um, get in the future? And what is necessary to have heaven from our part, like like the alliance um, of friends of Ukraine delivering weapons and so on? Yeah, so if you can just outline uh, some answers on uh, the questions I alluded to there now. Well, first of all, I need to mention one point. I think that the counteroffensive is very much expected in Europe. And I think sometimes the expectations, they overcome the reality because people are in that much hype and they want the war to be over. And they don't think about the costs that it takes to actually go through this counteroffensive. And that's a very concerning thing for me because, you know, I feel that sometimes people just open the map and say, well, I want this to finish as soon as possible and to have the world peace and everything. But they don't think that the counteroffensive really needs a lot of planning, a lot of strategies. And it costs lives. So it's bloodshed on every step and every centimeter that our defenders are gaining and regaining, uh, which were occupied. And we are paying, as Ukrainians, we are paying like very, very high price for that. This price cannot be compared. Yeah, that's incomparable to anything else. And I think that in these comments, which we often see and I come across, um, I don't know, and The Economist or The New York Times or any other printed and online media, people keep talking about the counteroffensive a lot more than about the war crimes that Russia keeps committing. So I would say that everything requires its particular time and particular moment. And counteroffensive especially requires silence. And I believe not all pieces of information are also transmitted and delivered to Ukrainians, because otherwise it would be just the heritage of every other intelligence, uh, including the Russian intelligence. And this is something that should be done in silence and making people not to forget what price we are all paying to win this war. So I think that the counteroffensive may be happening right now, but it's a very, very complicated process and it's a multi-layered process. And it's not going as quickly as expected by some armchair critics and some couch experts, uh, just because we need to realize the scope. Ukraine is the biggest country in Europe with the biggest territory and Russia has been using the same tactics they were using in World War II and in many wars they were previously involved in, including Chechnya and Syria and so on. And all the fields and all the territories are mined. Russians are even mining the dead bodies of their soldiers. So 
it's no heavy weaponry, no, no, yeah, no weaponry, no artillery can move when everything is mined and it requires a lot of effort to regain every centimeter of the earth. And this counteroffensive is happening, but the price of it is very high. And yeah, it's a bit slow, but I can assure that there are some uh, successes and some victories, but it won't happen in the blink of an eye that Ukraine regains all the territories that were occupied since 2014 and Crimea in several days, because this is not blitzkrieg, this is a strategy. And the more West keeps supporting us, and the quicker they make the decisions into Alia regarding F-16 and other things that need to happen, Ukraine joining NATO, for example, the sooner we'll regain the territories and we will re-establish peace, security and democracy in Europe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and of course, I 100% agree with everything you just said there. I think that the attitude in the West is sometimes a bit as if this is a sort of reality show that we are following. And then initially we all picked Ukraine and now we are following and like hoping for the best. And then, as you said and alluded to, the pattern in our reaction, I, I just think it's wrong because when something is not going as fast as it should do in a normative way, we tend to react with a bit of disappointment and like confusion. Whereas I think what we should react with is dissatisfiedness and with our governments and calls for more weapons to be sent to Ukraine. And we should also be way more loud and clear about the fact that the West, no matter how you look at it, as an, yeah, as an, as an actor in this war is the most changeable actor and therefore also the most yeah changeable actor determining what will be the outcome of said Ukrainian offensives and uh, and and that's the point you you are making as well so I just wanted to nail it down that that it is very privileged and very lazy and actually also pretty empty I would say to to just and yeah, as you said, to to be like a couch expert and lean yourself back and mention all the things you're, uh, that you are disappointed about not happening. <laughs> when the actual case is that if you want more to happen, then you could also get out of your couch and start vocally supporting Ukraine and whenever you have the possibility, because that would make the chances of Ukraine to receive the weapon that they need to do this counteroffensive it would um it would increase that because that's how politics work and um yeah and I, I think that this is actually a good leeway to another thing i want to talk about and here you're 
thinking about, which is the cluster ammunitions. Because here in uh, Denmark, on Danish Twitter, and, and a lot of other places, I can see there's a lot of people saying, oh, Ukraine should not receive cluster ammunitions because we know from history and from the statistics that cluster and ammunitions would lead to this, this, and this. And um, yeah, I obviously not, do not agree with any of the people putting out such sentiments because I think that is not acknowledging what the actual conflict is and who the actors are. But um, but can you yeah can you uh, talk a bit about the cluster munition situation and like um, explain also why it is so important for Ukraine right now to receive these cluster munitions? Yeah, regarding cluster ammunition, I must say that I am an active user of Twitter and I'm not posting myself. I'm rather active on Instagram um, talking about the war, but I read all the comments, like main comments regarding the cluster ammunition and especially the comments of the leftist or rightist parties that uh, Ukraine should not receive ones. And I would say that there are main two comments regarding that on my behalf. And the first thing is that it's very important to distinguish the notions. Russia came to our territory to kill and to commit genocide. And Russia should not be victimized in any sense. Ukraine is defending not only our territorial integrity, and our sovereignty, our independence, but we are now fighting for freedom and security in whole Europe. We are now defending Europe. And Russia uses cluster ammunition to kill. Ukraine uses cluster ammunition to defend. That's very important to understand. And unfortunately... Also, can I just say one thing here? Also, they use it to free people and that's an important point and that's important to realize that russia is a huge country the country that is still supported by many actors the country that still gets access to vital parts and electronics and keeps producing missiles to fire at ukraine the country that has been leading war against ukraine since 2014 and as we see, sanctions do not really stop Russia or prevent Russia from future atrocities that are happening and taking place. And cluster ammunition is the way for Ukraine to defend and to help us get rid of Russia and withdraw and, and, and help, help us yeah, uh, to make sure that Russia withdraws all the troops from our territories as soon as possible. That's the first thing to distinguish these notions. The second thing that is really important uh, to take into account that Ukraine, that all the weapons that Ukraine receives are, are being monitored. And believe me, there are special commissions and there are very strict regulations as where to the weapons go, where they're used and how they use, especially Americans, they track their weapons really well. And if Americans and Ukrainians as well say that, that we have given guarantees that we will not fire and will try to limit the casualties of the civilian population to minimum from using cluster ammunition, believe me that these steps have been 
really analyzed and really strictly taken into account and reviewed before this decision has been made. Because the West is always very attentive as where the weapons goes before making any decision and before saying that we will deliver that. And it will take at least several months to deliver cluster ammunition. So I'm sure that all these guarantees and all these processes are really well established to make it happen and to ensure that the causes of such use outweigh the possible casualties by far. And last point I want to make is that we should not forget the fact that cluster ammunition is not something new in this war because Russia has been firing cluster ammunition since the beginning of the full-scale invasion. And Ukrainian civilians have already suffered from it, not only civilians, but also soldiers. So one party has been actively using ammunition, a cluster ammunition. That's very important to take into account. And Ukraine has the right to self-defense, especially if we talk about the defense of our territorial integrity and our sovereignty. And then the, the last point I want to make is that According to the U.S. decision, this action is actually the transition action. Thing is, the U.S. cannot double or triple their manufacturing of 155 millimeter um, artillery for Ukraine at this point because just the manufacturing facilities are not that big and also requires a lot of economic input and a lot of uh, process process changes and process review. That means that um, this decision to supply cluster ammunition is transition before the US and other countries which are now in coalition have enough capacities to supply Ukraine with 155 millimeter artillery ammunition, then we can do our job and we can make sure that Russia loses this war. So hopefully it won't last long and I'm sure that this this action is necessary at this point of time because otherwise Russia could have led the war for ages and centuries because with all the world trade and with all the fossil fuels, natural resources Russia has. I'm sure they can trade a lot of things because if Putin and Russia loses this war, it will be a big defeat and he will put everything at stake not to like to prevent Ukrainian victory. So I'm sure that this step hmm. is really necessary. Yeah, and I also think it's necessary for the same reasons as you said, but I would like to add a few points to it why I think that cluster munitions are especially uh, necessary in this case. Uh, well, the, the first point is more of an argument against those people presenting statistics about how many civilian casualties there have been from cluster munitions before because what those people usually do is that they look at where cluster munitions have been used before and then based upon those statistics 
they generalize what is the possible casualties of cluster munitions used in Ukraine by Ukraine. But the thing is that cluster munitions uh, casualties are usually a long-term thing. And the thing is that some of the places where these statistics are from, Kosovo, for example, and Afgan Afghanistan and other areas, the situation was that when the cluster munitions were used and the war in which these cluster munitions were used, so to say, when these wars were over, a period of stability didn't occur afterwards in the in the yeah, in the geographical locations where these cluster munitions were used. And that is according to me and according to a lot of other experts on Twitter, I can see a huge part of the reasoning to why those civilian casualties were so high. So in Afghanistan, for example, a lot of the places where, where these um, cluster munitions were used became areas either controlled by Taliban or areas disputed between yeah, USA and Afghanistan. And when you have such a situation, it makes it impossible for the actors that would otherwise be able to do so, like uh, mine destroyers, and the, I don't know the exact term, but there is firms going um, around the globe and removing mines, mines, for example, but they can only do that in secure areas. And a lot of the areas where all these cluster munitions casualties come from were not secure areas when those casualties were arising. And that will not be the situation in Ukraine. So we will not see the same civilian casualties post the war as we have seen in other, yeah, in other instances. And I just think it's so typical for those types of people and people with um, those types of ideological backgrounds when it comes to war, that they will just take anything and then uh, use it as something that they can say to blur the effort that are actually being done to help Ukraine in this case. And I just think that is, um, yeah, it's, to me, it's actually uh, a little bit terrifying that so many people in the West does that. And if, yeah, I just want to say this because these people are also usually the same people that before the war tried to lay it out as if Russia didn't have the main responsibility for what was happening before the full-scale invasion, and but that it was actually some sort of, uh, yeah, it, it, they had a conspiracy actually that this was um, about NATO expansionism in Ukraine, and um, yeah, it's, it's the same people who said that are now saying that cluster munitions should be a problem because of so and so, and um, yeah, that's just so uh, it's so easy to see through, I think, and. Um, I just think everyone should keep calling out those people because they are not here for Ukraine. They are here to gain voices, no, to gain uh, votes from people they know uh, share their sentiment towards war in general, um, which is that war is uh, something that they will never understand because they just intrinsically think it's bad. And um, yeah, they're, therefore, they, they, that's why they talk like this, uh, I think. And then, um, Another reason why it is so important uh, here on a more um, tactical level 
is because of the fact that cluster munitions is exactly what Ukraine needs right now to break the Russian defensive lines because cluster munitions works well against heavily fortified and defended areas with a lot of mines because it will make it so that fewer people have to go through these areas. And um, yeah, that, that's just the, the main logistical reasoning for this to, um, to be the case. So, so I just think that um, these cluster munitions should be sent right now. And yeah, sorry, I really don't want to talk too much, but I just think that these things that, about cluster munitions are so important. And there is one last thing I remember now that I wanted to say, which is that sending or not sending these cluster munitions, besides the effect that they have on the military ground, is also a huge part of our signaling towards Putin and uh, actually also towards Xi Jinping in the end, because they know if we decide not to send these cluster munitions, that then they have an advantage in that case, because then we fear to send something that they will never fear to use. And um, that is just stepping ourselves in the, in the back, actually, I think. So, so on a lot of levels, it is just very important to send these cluster munitions, I, I strongly believe. And um, yeah, why would Ukraine otherwise also be asking these cluster munitions? Do you have anything to say um, to this before we move on to our, um, some of the other recent news? Regarding your first argument, it's not that I disagree, but I would rather say that we could, you know, history is the subject of a lot of ifs, and we could deliberate on this topic, what if, what if, what if, for a long time. And we could think about all the possible scenarios, because no one really knows how it will go and how many casualties there are. But the thing is, the thing is it is war in europe happening right now happening for a decade already and we should not live with some imaginary future with some imaginary numbers that every expert tries to assess we should live with what we have on the ground with the status quo now and the status quo is that the country with the biggest territory in europe is getting wiped down from the surface of earth by an imperialist and authoritarian regime in russia and many russians support this war russia commits genocide in ukraine and it's not just the fight for ukraine and i clearly understand the sentiment that many europeans do not sympathize with ukraine or do not feel what ukrainians feel because let's be honest when the war in Syria started, I don't think that many Ukrainians could really sympathize with many Syrians. Only people who really like study international relations, study international law, and who could really understand the concept of the things. So, like, no one is really capable of feeling and sympathizing of what Ukrainians are going through unless they really see and they really have like the war impacted themselves the, the, these people sorry so the thing is that now we are talking about the geopolitical scope we are talking about the world being bipolarized again and russia 
spreading its imperialist roots into the other states. It's not just about Ukraine, it's about the Balkan countries, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia. It's about Russia trying to promote this narrative inside the EU and other countries. Russia befriending China, which is a great menace, and so on. So now that result and the outcomes of this war will influence the generations to come. And if Ukraine does not win this war, which is highly doubtful in my opinion, it just proves the weakness of the EU, it just proves the weakness of the political system as a whole, and the EU will never have a word again, because it will be Russia, US and China, as three hegemonic powers in the world. And that would be a disaster. So now it's the time when the whole democratic world, the world that really values liberty, freedom, the pluralism of thoughts and human rights can give its clear response to the atrocities and the violation of these human rights for once and forever. Because if Russia loses, believe me, they won't be able to lead the wars for at least 100 years to come. This should be a complete defeat of Russia, which will hopefully result in its decentralization. So in this response, we have to live with now. And now we have already thousands of casualties. We have hundreds of people dying at the front line daily. And to prevent more casualties, to prevent bigger numbers, we need cluster ammunition now. It should have been done a lot of time ago as F-16 as Leopards, but unfortunately, a lot of decisions, they require consensus and they require a lot of bureaucracy to overcome and to go through. And this is trudging, this is diplomatical trudge. That this is the only option that we have, unfortunately. Otherwise, Ukraine will just become a puppet state as Belarus now is, and it won't exist. And um, Russia will just go on and on and on until they swallow more and more states and until they prove everything with the power that they are the mm-hmm. last one to listen. And can I just, um, following up upon this point, say that. I just really want to thank the Ukrainians and Ukraine as a nation for every, everything you guys have done for preventing the situation that you are des- describing, which could have ha- happened if Ukraine had not showed such willingness to defend and been so successful in that effort. So I think it's great that you also keep coming back to the overall arching points of what is happening with this war, because sometimes people forget that. I don't think I'm one of those people myself, but when doing this, um, talking about recent news, you can sometimes get carried away like the normal news stream. So yeah, it's, it's just so important that we keep coming back to what is really at stake here, which is the future of First and foremost, Ukraine, then Russia, then Europe, and then the world. And 
I just think people have to realize that, although it is very difficult, but but the fact that this thing is so big and that the yeah repercussions are so huge is also just another um, argument for the fact that we have to send these weapons to Ukraine so that they can win this war as fast as possible, and also so that and then this is the point I also had when I talked with Slovenia which is that I also think it is important for the rest for the rest of the world to see that as Ukraine is winning, they are also winning with strong help from the West so that people all around the world that might want to enact democratic change within their own societies know that they have a friend in the democratic world that will also come to their aid, so to say, when these people that want to enact these changes, these dem democratic changes, faces challenges. Because right now, I don't think that is the kind of world that we're living in. But it could be on the other side of a Ukrainian victory. Yeah, so that's just all the more reason to send these cluster munitions. Because I, I also think they, they have a very strong part to play in the informational global narrative struggle because yeah as i also already said if we decide not to send these things it will just send a very wrong signal to people like putin first of all but also to, um, to people like xi, xi jinping and yeah the reason why i said uh, those things about the, the statistics in the first place is also just because i don't mind calling out people whom i think are wrong every single time they talk about the ukrainian war and those sorts of people are just wrong every time they say anything about the war or at least they will be when time catches up upon them and um, i just think it is important to keep mentioning that because yeah in the end when this is all over i think everyone has to be looked back upon with the with an uh yeah in, in a just life and if you have not if you have not been supporting ukraine all the way through you need to know that you didn't support Ukraine all the way through because then you cannot just say, oh, but we all supported Ukraine when that was not the case, actually. There was, as uh, in Denmark, it's a very small minority, but on a broader scale in France, Germany, USA, and, and so on, it is not that small a minority. There is a lot of people always putting in arguments um, to suggest we should support Ukraine less or something. But and I just think it's important always to mention why these people are wrong. It's because they don't look at things from situation to situation. They just try to put their overall theoretical framework or something down upon everything. And that um yeah, that that's the way that they are justifying the fact that they do not support sending cluster munitions to Ukraine. And I just think um yeah, we need to stop doing that. But let's, um, I think we have um, come across now also in a pretty strong way with the reasons to why Ukraine needs to get these cluster munitions. And so I think it's fair enough that we move on to another topic that is maybe even, well, as, as we talked about in the beginning, all these things are um, interconnected and all these things can play uh, yeah, a role as if to whether or not 
some things happen to, to with regards to the other subjects that we will talk about. But I think this question about um, whether or not, or also let me put it like this: there is a NATO conference right now. I just read that the Secretary General of NATO, Jens Stoltenberg, arrived in Vilnius today, and the most important thing on the agenda is, of course, what the terms will look like for a future Ukrainian membership in NATO. And yeah, just to be clear about my opinion right from the get-go here, I believe that what should be the result of the NATO conference is that NATO comes out and say when Ukraine has regained all its territory with the utmost help of us, they will have a fast lane process directly into NATO so that Russia knows as soon as it is possible on the other side of uh, into the war that they should never ever try to go to war in Ukraine again because the next time it will be with the force of um, the next time the forces that will be fighting Russia will then be the whole of NATO. Yeah, so so I think to me that seems pretty clear um, that, that that should be the result. Maybe it should be something even more strong. But um, yeah, what is your uh, feelings towards this and how do you view the importance of it and how um, how is your um, sense of how all this um, yeah, how Ukrainians feel about all these things. So something that I expect and something that is going to turn out, I think these are very different things because, well, unfortunately, there is no consensus in NATO uh, in terms of admitting Ukraine. And I'm not just speaking about Budapest and Hungary being a very daring friend of Russia and actually supporting Russia in all possible diplomatic ways and blocking all the decisions as uh, well they were doing with uh, Sweden, even with Sweden joining NATO. And um, I'm not just talking about, for example, Germany, which is which prefers to be rather cautious in terms of Ukraine joining NATO and even the US as the biggest NATO power. Uh, not being able to 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 make a clear clear word and uh, to make a clear um, resolution on this regard, and I clearly understand the risks this country is taking into account because in two thousand fourteen there was a lack of response from the world community when Russia occupied Crimea, and everyone just put up with it. Everyone forgot about this as nothing was going on as not uh, some parts of Donetsk and Pohansk regions were occupied, as Crimea was not occupied. And then in the years, yeah, in, in eight years, Russia came again to conquer Ukraine and to make Ukraine lose its independence. And of course, I believe that, uh, well, the US and European countries, they do understand it has happened for the second time already. With Chechnya, these were two big Chechen wars. So there is always a probability Russia will come again and again and again in decades uh, to conquer and destroy Ukraine, destroy mentally, destroy our national identity, and just wipe out us, uh, wipe us out from the surface of the earth. And 
to be honest, for me, it is unclear how NATO and how such countries cannot understand the global implications of this war and the global threats that Russia possesses to the world peace and the world security. Especially taking into account that most international organizations are still inefficient and very silent and keep calling uh, a Ukrainian crisis or Ukrainian conflict. But the thing is that the main two things what Ukraine has to be admitted to NATO is not something that you just mentioned, right? That it won't create another precedent of Russia invading Ukraine because it will automatically um, involve and put into action Article 5 of the statute. But uh, the main thing is that well, there hasn't been any big uh, war in Europe in the last decade, apart from this one. Last big war was World War Two. Well, there were Serbia and Kosovo and uh, Czechoslovakia and other things going on and wars there. But Ukraine is gaining on-hand experience right now. Ukraine is testing American weapons, the UK weapons, and other weapons that are being delivered to us. No other army, well, apart, except for the Finnish ones, I think, are really, we don't take into account Americans, I mean the European ones, no, no other army is really capable of that and having really on hand practical experience in the modern warfare, in the modern state of things in the modern yeah, uh, way how you lead the war and with our knowledge with all the things that Ukraine has been applying because there are many things that the West teaches us there are many things that we learn and that we apply in our own way the Ukraine army will be an asset to NATO because we are the ones who can actually go on the missions and really protect the world, peace and security after gaining so much experience. And we can be the ones who can really teach and take part in all those military drills that the NATO organizes and really provide them with, with hand-on experience there. That's the first important thing to take into account. And the second thing is that NATO has to give clear response to Russia and, you know, all the time speaking about the red lines, no one really knows where the red line is. So will the explosion of the nuclear power plant finally be the red line? Or will uh, attack on Poland be the red line? To be honest, me, me in Europe right now, I'm not sure if there is any attack on Poland because there were some things happening. There were Russian drones entering the territory of Romania entering the territory of Poland and some precedents. And I'm not sh uh well that was with with the with the with entering the drones that was last year and entering the territory of Romania and Moldova and there were precedents happening already. Of course it was not like I don't know military jet um uh, military jet like throwing bombs on, on the polish cities would have on the romanian cities but there were precedents where the the russian drones and russian planes they violated the airspace of nato countries nato did not make any solid response uh, as to that 
And the thing is that, uh, you know, I sometimes wonder where, when is the red line for NATO and if such things really happen to the Balkan states or to Poland, will NATO ever activate Article 5 or there will be, well, the rounds of negotiations in France and Germany going on and all this bureaucracy taking weeks while other countries will basically be drawn in bloodshed, you know. So the thing is that um, such actions, they actually show that such unions, military unions as NATO, they have certain value. And it's not just a platform for military exchange, but it's the platform for democracy to win over autocracy, to win over totalitarianism. That's why I think that the only response and the only option can be admitting Ukraine to NATO without any further requirements. Because in my opinion, losing hundreds of lives and having thousands of people killed, including civilians, and with this number of war crimes Russia has already committed in Ukraine, I think that Ukraine has proven that we have power, we have courage, and we deserve to be NATO members, unlike any other country state that. And it's the price we are paying. And I think that like some countries, Germany, for example, was given us three days yeah, to, to give in to Russia and just to put up with the state of affairs. We have been fighting in the full-scale invasion for over one year and a half. I think the numbers and the time is the best answer to that, that Ukraine has to become a NATO member. And the sooner it happens, the better it is for democracy. All right, so you think independently from the fact that the war is going on, that the result of the conference should just be that Jens Stoltenberg comes out and says, we are going to let Ukraine accession to NATO begin right now. And if they get accepted into NATO when the war is still going on, we will then think about activating Article 5. Is that um, but right? We just um, it's, it's not so. Uh, but sorry, but no. just explain. I think it's just to explain. Yeah, just to explain because I, um, I think I know where scenario. you're coming from, and I actually think the, the exactly the same thing. If uh, what what I believe about your um, perspective towards it is is um is true as. When I say that I want the conclusion of the meeting to be that we say as step firm as possible that Ukraine will get admitted, admitted to NATO as soon as the Russian threat towards Ukraine is gone. That obviously including the fact that Ukraine has regained all territory it is entitled to under international law and according to the democratic wishes of the Ukrainian people, um, as soon as we hit that situation, maybe even before the Russian threat is over, maybe even 
as soon as Ukraine has regained all its territory, as soon as Ukraine is uh, de facto anti-Europe controlling all territory, then we should let Ukraine become a NATO member straight away. And um, the reason why I think it is like that is because I think that, to me at least, is the clearest path towards a Ukrainian NATO membership in which we also make Russia understand the consequences of what they are doing and of what they've done. And so, so to me, it's all about thinking uh, strategically in your own head about what is the smartest way that we can get this process, um, that we can have this process happening as fast as possible without saying that it will happen in a way that is too hypothetical as you were also um, alluding to, because, because yeah, it, it is just very difficult to see right now that we should admit Ukraine to become a NATO member, like starting five months from now on, but for example. But, but to me, it's all about messaging the correct things to Putin as well and to the Ukrainians as well. And, and I think right now we are not doing that. We are, we're too cautious. And we have too much fear, and we have we don't have the historical understanding of the importance of this war that is happening right now, as you were also saying. But but can can you just lay out completely what would you like uh, to have Jens Stoltenberg say? When the summit is uh, when when the conference the summit is um, is concluded, like what is your um, ideal? Uh, yeah, what what should he ideally say according to you? Well, something that you described was rather an unrealistic scenario that would never happen because I don't think first of all, as a person who has background in international law, being a lawyer, I can say that the law doesn't have retrospective action. So um and uh, recreative as well it means that even if ukraine is admitted into nato um, right now we cannot activate article 5 uh, with regard to the current russian ukrainian war and the thing is that it doesn't make any sense so this is all talking uh these are all whereabouts of this um russian ukrainian war the thing is i'm trying to deliver is that for now to join the nato you have, you have a lot of requirements and you have the certain preliminary action plan for every country that is going to join NATO. And I think that Ukraine automatically, by fighting for such a long time and using all the tactics that we fulfill this plan. So I don't mean that uh, Stoltenberg will come out tomorrow in Vilnius, uh, the day after tomorrow, and say... That can, I, can I ask one thing here? Because I think maybe I understand it now. Um, so you think that we should preemptively say that Ukraine is now a, a NATO member, but then we should do it in a way in which we don't enact Article 5 straight away and that that would also be legal, legally possible? It's a... uh, we cannot say Ukraine is a NATO member, but what I mean is that... I expect like the ideal scenario in my head would be just to say that yes, we're inviting Ukraine to become a NATO member 
without this preliminary action plan, but that doesn't mean that Ukraine becomes a NATO member right away. As you said, we have to regain our territories. And that's the thing. So as soon as we regain our territories, we become NATO members without any ifs. That's the same with the EU scenario. That's what I mean. So Ukraine starts this path right now, but it's obvious that it's not the process that is happening in one day or even one month. It may take years and decades. For example, with Turkey, Turkey started their way to the EU in 1987, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, with a lot of backlashes and uh, democratic and uh, like backlashes in democracy and other human rights violations and so on and so forth. That's the same for Ukraine. I mean, it would be fair to say that Ukraine is invited and there is consensus on that. But of course, when you regain the territories, but as you said in the beginning, to prevent other attacks from Russia happening and without Ukraine to go through like another 20 decades or after victory with this, uh, you know, like preliminary action plan to become a NATO member, which will never happen, you know. So to be very specific in the words and to deliver this message that all NATO members want to see Ukraine yeah. in NATO. Yeah, but then we are, then we are in complete agreement, I believe. And towards this this point towards this thing and yeah I I just think it's so um, mind blowing to me that it is so difficult for all these world leaders to wrap their head around the fact that the smartest thing for everyone in the alliance and for everyone in the Ukrainian defense contact group. Uh, also would be to state clearly that without any ifs, as you said, Ukraine will join NATO as soon as all its territory is regained. And and I, I just think it is um, imperative that we um, come to such a, a conclusion. But unfortunately, I also think the two of us share, share some worries as if to whether or not the message would be like that. Um so so what 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 do you think will be the message from the meeting now not talking uh, ideally but um what do you realistically think will be the message Well realistically I think that they will say that they support Ukraine they support all the struggle Ukrainian people are going through that they will keep supporting Ukraine with weapon delivery and with further military aid then the whole democratic community stands with Ukraine so all this blah blah of politics uh, because politics is actually a wordplay uh, it's a dirty game and it's wordplay and I believe this will be showing deep concerns about Russia's war crime here and there, maybe they will come up with some security guarantees for Ukraine. But the thing is, I'm not a military expert to assess how thorough and profound or how really impactful these guarantees will be. But one thing I want to mention that there was already a security guarantee for Ukraine. That was Budapest Memorandum, right, signed by quite influential states and where did it lead us it led us to the thing that russia being the 
signatory of this Budapest Memorandum started the war of aggression against Ukraine. So I don't think that any security guarantees can really replace the notions and like me as Ukrainian, I believe that the answer should be very clear. So Ukraine should be invited to join NATO. And um, yeah, because anything else is incomparable to the price we are paying. And uh, like any other security guarantees, they will not have an effect uh, on Russia because Russia can violate any agreement and uh, can neglect any international law provisions existing. So um, that will be a signal to Ukraine that we should act and we should like everything depends on us. That's the message that we may get. So unfortunately, despite a lot of expectations, I think it won't be as promising or as historical as many people tend to think. Yeah, but can I um, can I say one thing here, also to lift up the the mood a bit? I think what will end up happening is that Germany, France, USA, and some of the other countries that are in that came towards what should happen with regards to messaging about future Ukrainian NATO membership as a conclusion of the conference right now in Vilnius. I think that sometime in the future, a bad conscience will hit them because at some point in the future, I think it will have appeared to anyone what would have been the right thing to do at this meeting, for example, but also even earlier, yeah. But, but now we're talking about this meeting and and I think uh, hindsight will hit them because I do not doubt in a second what is the will of the Ukrainians to keep fighting this cause and to, um, to keep fighting this struggle. I don't think that is um, so dependent upon what will be the conclusions to this NATO conference. So So I just think that this is an, another case in which the West, NATO, whatever you want to call our, um, our collective institutions and yeah, family and so on, whatever you want to call it. I think this will just be another point that we in the future will look back upon and say that we failed. And, and I just think it's, um, yeah, it's a very, um, how, how can you say it? Um, it's, it's a bit of a worrying path that we're following, I think, with regards to all this. And, and although we have become so much better than we were, than we were in the beginning, I just think we're such a long way from being where we should be. And, and I think it's a problem because this creates a situation in which the Ukrainians always have to prove us wrong and always have to surpass our expectations and, do all these things that we and and yeah so so in the end I think it will it will be clear that of course Ukraine have to join NATO but but I don't think we will get to that conclusion in NATO before the conclusion has appeared for a long period as the right decision and I think that's um, that's the problem towards this point but but yeah as you, as you are also alluding to I think um, then then. All this NATO thing, if the correct message isn't getting across the board, then and it, it is just not that important, actually, because, oh, well, of course, it is important 
because what could have happened, but in terms of effect on the ground, the Ukrainian motivation will be there no matter what is the messaging from um, from this meeting. And I just think that's an important point because that is the fact so that inevitably will lead all these people to realize at some point in the future that they took the wrong uh, decision. But we also still have to uh, give them the benefit of the doubt here because no conclusions have been um, reached yet. And um, yeah, so, so that's just important to say, but but I think we are in, in an agreement that the two of us will probably be a bit disappointed about the outcome. But let's, um, because now we have been talking for an hour, um, so I, I'm not sure we can um, fit everything in that we wanted to talk about, but I really, really want to close off this segment by talking about the situation at the Saparitian nuclear power plant, because as far as I understand, we still don't know if whether or not Russia are planning to uh, set off explosives that are on top of the yeah of the power uh, stations. And the reason why we cannot say anything with certain certainty about that, as far as I know, is that the international observers that are at the power plant ground uh, and are accessing some things are not allowed by the Russians to get up on the rooftops. And that is the worrying factor. And I just think it's so crazy how we have almost, yeah, it's not that we have stopped talking about it, but but it's not something that is getting the, the same attention as it did, let's say, a week ago. But it's, it's a very crazy situation and a very terrifying situation. And so... Can you just, um, yeah, maybe explain the whole thing, how Ukrainians discovered it and what has been like the diplomatic reaction towards it and, and where you think it all stands right now? Well, first of all, I must say that Russia has been occupying power plant for months. Yes, yeah, so the Parisian nuclear power plant has been the, under the Russian control. And it's very important to mention that it is the... Uh, biggest power plant, uh, nuclear power plant in Europe with six energy blocks. And it's the second biggest nuclear power plant in the world. So most people, they heard about the Chernobyl, which happened in 1986. And that would be if the explosion happens, Chernobyl, yeah, there were like, uh, well, two blocks basically that uh, that exploded and that were out of order. And these will be six blocks. So you can just multiply it using the simple maths and imagine the consequences that could um, yeah, that could happen if uh, if there is a real nuclear power. Uh, nuclear power. What do you think? Um, sorry, and it's not to um, cut you off, I, but I just want to get straight to some of the most important things here. Um, what do you think is the chances that uh, Russia? is actually going to do this well the chances are you know like no one really knows what russia is going to do so we'll leave uh, we'll leave like day by day and no one really knows i mean today the ukrainian intelligence says that the chances are rather low tomorrow they say it's urgency number one the thing is we should always be prepared and we should always keep an eye that's the point because if there are is this sorry sorry but is is this one more thing where 
all we should actually do is not to talk about if whether or not we believe they will do it. Of course, of course, that is important. But in the West, for example, is it um, a correct uh, analysis of me that the Ukrainians actually would rather have us clearly stating what the consequences would be for Russia if exactly. they were to do such things? Exactly. I mean, if if for example, when Biden told that if Russia uses uh, nuclear uh, if nuclear tactical weapons, that automatically would mean that America would drag and would uh, actually get involved into the Russian-Ukrainian war. The same thing should happen with, with actually drawing this red line that if Russia blows nuclear power plant or tries to blow the nuclear power plant, the response is the following. And the world, uh, NATO countries, the EU states and so on, should be very clear on that. That's sh what should happen. About the incapacity of the International Atomic Energy Agency, that's very true what you've mentioned. They're not allowed to access the roofs. And there is information that Russia has uh, explosives on the roofs. But let's not talk about the explosives on the roofs. L Russia has been occupying the station for months. And there has been a lot of heavy weaponry. There were tanks in the station and other things that are actually on the territory of the station, which is the object that should be protected. Why is the International Atomic Energy Agency not doing anything? You know, there are a lot of, um, there are pictures after the visit of the international observers when they are hugging the Russian occupants who actually are present at the station. And for me, it's just, I cannot believe that it is happening in the international organization whose mission is to protect and make everything possible to demilitarize the zone. So for me, I cannot imagine, I, I don't see any other things, you know, for me, everything that um, that International Atomic Energy Agency says is just like, uh, I mean, that's an empty sound because I cannot really trust them. I cannot trust people that were inactive for the months that are hugging occupants and that pretend that it's okay for the country, the aggressor state, to occupy a nuclear power plant and actually to blackmail the whole world and to threaten with exploding. That's where it's insane. It's insane that the yeah that representatives representatives from that organization would do that. And yeah, it, it just it keeps blowing my mind hearing all such stories because yeah, this is not the first st uh, story of such a uh, character that I uh, hear, and I I swear I just get more and more angry on behalf of Ukraine and Ukrainians when when thinking about how many flaws there is in the reaction of the international system when you really get down to the bottom of it, because yeah, all right, do, so now I'm just gonna say. It very uh, blatantly and directly. These people talking the Russians, I think they just did that because they wanted to have some good pictures for social media or something, so that there could be like a feel good mentality. Oh, look at us, we're now hugging uh, the Russians, blah, 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 everything is under control. 
It's just so underwhelming. They're just performing the role of mediators. They're trying to perform the role of mediators. But, you know, in my opinion, this is not something where you have, I mean, I do understand the consequences that, uh, I mean, they're afraid that if they say, okay, get out of here, you know, Russia will actually blow up the station, the nuclear power plant, I mean, uh, with six nuclear reactors. But on the other hand, uh, there are there are some red lines and for me like i don't really understand the concept of this uh, of this agency why it even exists there's no explanation for this olena because their attitude towards it should of course be that if russia then don't let them have access to the rooftops their reaction should be to straight away go to the free press with um with those statements yeah i agree i agree that and i really think that for me that should be more action and should make more clear statements that's what you said like about the consequences of this happening not the assessment whether or not it is going to happen i think maybe we, we don't have that much time left um and we've also already talked for for, for quite a while um so i think it, it was a very good very very good walkthrough of all the most important current uh, how can you say it? Developing stories and developing situations in uh, in the war in Ukraine, and uh, yeah, yeah, of course, what you also said it is so comprehensive that you have to always think of all these things interconnected, and if you want to to get the best analysis, also. Um, but what I would like to uh, then now is um, to suggest that we at some point in the future do another conversation uh, where we talk more about your work and what you're doing and how that all relates to the yeah the the process of ukrainian integration into the eu and into nato and other international institutions and so on and um, how that work is also related to to the war but if um if it's all right with you what i would like to uh, end off with here is uh, to, to explain how i think that uh, people like me and other people can take part in the information of global warfare by trying to change the discourse in the in the international system and uh, yeah, so so first of all, I'm doing this conversation series as um, as a political driven, 100% voluntary media project because I think you have to do such things in 2023 if you really want to make your voice heard and if you really want to um, get people to listen to what you have to say. Uh, in the best possible way. So that's why I, yeah, that I do this conversation series. But in a way, it is just a part of my broader political activism for Ukraine. And I found out now that I can term this as Ukraine fluencing. And that's because I believe that on Instagram, for example, you're this is just how I, uh, I how I see political activism also in a sense. So so that on Instagram, I sometimes get uh, a bit annoyed 
by people who use their profiles and their platforms politically without being clear about what they are doing so that they m might cover some political subjects or some political narratives that they are following they are kind of disguising that in the general tone of their uh, messaging and i think that by saying ukraine influencing then you make clear that you are influencing all the ukrainian calls on for example instagram so you are clear about the fact that you are politically active and you are clear about the fact that you are doing it to influence things um, and that's why i think ukraine planting is a great term and <clears throat> i also i didn't even come up with it as something that it, it was not like all right now i'm going to do ukraine planting that's not how i came up with it i came up with it because a lot of people were asking me based upon some reels i did if whether or not i had become an influencer and obviously i I don't, I don't really like influencers that much. So it annoyed me a little bit that people thought that was what I was doing. And then I came up with the term Ukraine influencing to explain why I'm not an influencer. And then I posted that in what I think was it. All right, so we had some connection issues and therefore we lost the connection at this point. But we pick up again from the explanation of the ukraine fluencing concept so enjoy the rest of the conversation so as i was um, explaining the ukraine fluencing concept i talked about why and like how i came up with it and i think the reason that it is important actually that i came up with it in this way is also that it was not just something that i said now i want to do ukraine fluencing and then i started doing it it kind of came nat naturally uh, to me and it's just so great to also meet other people who see the how can you say it potential in this thing and um, seem to understand the the basics of it which is very easy um, it, it is just to state <clears throat> clearly that you are ukraine fluencing or that you are ukraine fluencer whenever you post something about ukraine and yeah so i just wanted to tell you a bit about the the background for coming up with that and the thoughts going into it and what what do you think let me just um yeah send it straight to you what do you think people like me and other europeans for example can do if they want to help change the overall discourse in the international system in favor of ukraine well, there are a lot of fronts to fight and I think the person, everyone should find their own niche. But the first thing I need that people need to realize that every single person can make a difference. It doesn't matter whether you donate uh, like money you spend on a cup of coffee or even less one euro a day because coffee in Europe costs like three, four euros, at least in Germany, I don't know about Denmark, but I assume something like that. Or uh, you do something like what you do, so you choose the information warfare and you speak up about Ukraine uh, on the social media and on, on different platforms, or you really do live political work and you try to engage in diplomacy 
and to change something, for example, in the local level where you live or you actually go as a volunteer to the front line and fight. So there are a lot of different front lines to take into consideration. The main thing is that every person should understand how the Russian-Ukrainian war influences the global security. And I think the less, the, le the least what we can do is to spread the word and to talk about this impact, to talk about the consequences and to keep talking about the war crime that Russia is committing. And if we tell other people how it influences, because it's not just about Ukraine, that's the best way you can do. Of course, and like there are a lot of student initiatives that can help Ukrainian students who, for example, whose universities were destroyed and who cannot keep up with education and a lot of other things to be done. But everyone should have their own front. They fight in this war because this is the war of the democratic world. Sure. I think that's a very good uh, value to go out on. But so so um yeah the the terms we i've come up with or that we have agreed upon so far for this yeah it's of course the ukraine fluencing hashtag the ukraine fluencer hashtag and then something that i like a lot is the is to write also sometimes um a hashtag called in your own right meaning that this is something you do in your own right because you have your own reasons for doing it your own rights and with what you're saying we could maybe also um add the hashtag or at least the message um not just for ukraine because um i think maybe that is something that that a lot of people don't realize about people like you and me who, who care so much about ukraine is that yes of course we first and foremost for you of Ukraine and of the Ukrainians right now because of their immense sacrificing but but caring about Ukraine is actually caring about the rest of the world as well and and that's also something and I then yeah then I think that um, if your message were that everyone can make a difference which I think is a very resounding and great message to get across the board then then my message will be that this is not just about Ukraine. This is about the future of the whole world, of democracy, of climate, of other progressive agendas, of all these things that we want to realize in the West. Yeah, I totally agree with that. That would be my message as well. Nice. Then I think let's end the conversation upon that. So that was the conversation with Olena. It was a conversation where we really talked about a lot of a lot of the recent events and got a bit more technical about the stories that are surrounding the war and why it is important both for Ukraine and for the rest of the world. I really hope, however, also that after listening to this, you sit back with a feeling of why it is so important that we keep on supporting Ukraine. And also... Thanks to Olena Dutko once again for participating and for the producer Frederik Wagner for once again doing the work behind the scenes. Hey!